We come now to our text for today, and we have been walking through Hebrews for quite some time, almost a year, and uh, we have been trying to think about its argument and what it's telling us and all the things that we are to consider as we think about uh, this mediator, Jesus, who has given us hope and life eternal. And this letter serves not only as a reminder and encouragement for those uh, who would hear that, but also as a warning for those who are thinking about turning away, those who are thinking about leaving, uh, as it were, the church and going back to the synagogue. And this stands as a strong warning uh, to such people to say, listen, you're following an example that we've seen in Scripture before of a people who were led out of Egypt and went into the wilderness and were approaching the land of promise and rebelled against God, wanted to return back and never entered the promise of the land, which he uses as a picture of the promise of God, which is rest, which is rest. So again, we've seen this, and we've seen the superiority of the new covenant over and against the old covenant, all these arguments that are given to us. We may eventually, we've talked about this, go back to 2 Corinthians at some point to see how Paul makes an argument there, but all of this is pointing out the superiority of what we have in Christ, that we have a better covenant, a superior covenant, because we have a superior mediator a superior sacrifice, a superior priest and prophet and king, superior in all ways. And so we can rest in that, this author is saying. We've seen that Jesus is a better mediator than Moses and the angels who mediated the first covenant. We've seen that he's a greater trailblazer and captain of salvation than Joshua was who could not ultimately lead the people into rest, but Jesus does lead his people into rest. And so we see all these images Uh, throughout the the text, but there's also an argument for how he does it given to us over and over again. What makes Jesus a superior mediator, a superior sacrifice, superior priest and king and prophet? What makes him superior in all these ways? Well, this author says it's because of the incarnation. It's because of what he uniquely could do as the God-man. And that's why we dealt so much in Psalm 8, which originally David was speaking of creation, but the author says it speaks equally to salvation. Because Jesus, he says, was made lower than the angels. That's true in the incarnation, right? The one who was eternally God became a man, and in that sense made lower than the angels. And yet, he didn't stay there, did he? He was crowned with glory and honor. And of course, that points to his exaltation. And in that way, he took his seed at the right hand of the Father. And Psalm 8 shows us this was necessary. And we've spoken so often about uh, why we must guard ourselves when it comes to these truths and not listen to those that say they're secondary or not important. He became lower than the angels for this work which God sent him on, for which he freely came, but he was exalted back to the right hand of the Father. And so all of this points to how he became qualified to be our great high priest. Now, last week we saw there are qualifications to be a high priest, aren't there? There are qualifications. We saw, first of all, that he must be taken from among men. This is something that chapter 2 mentioned. He must be from among the people he represents. Check. Right? Jesus was from among the people he represents. He became a man. Again, That scripture alone, right? You could take just chapter 5, verse 1 and say 
This is not possible outside of the Incarnation. If He did not become a man, then He could not be appointed from among men. He could not represent men if He Himself were not a man. And so again, this is essential to understanding uh, this argument. He also serves on man's behalf in things pertaining to God. Did Christ accomplish that? Yes. He intercedes continually on our behalf. That is the argument here of Hebrews. It says that a priest must offer gifts and sacrifices. We can check that one off too, can't we? Because Christ offered once and for all the perfect atoning sacrifice that satisfied all the law's demands. He did it. And so again, we can point to it and say, He's done this. It says He must be able to minister gently, right? Uh, that's more or less that phrase that's given there. He must have compassion. He must minister, be a, a good minister, compassionate, understanding, measured in his, in his exercising of that gentleness. But he must be gentle. Does Christ meet that? Yes. Yes. Jesus is a good priest, a good mediator. He calls us to him. He shed his blood that we might be set free from the debt and penalty of sin. He is good. He is compassionate. And so again, we just uh, sang of the love of God, and it is most exhibited to us in Christ, His person and work. And so again, we see that He meets this one. He can sympathize with us. He can deal with us gently because He became a man. And the Scriptures say, it tells us in this very book that He was tempted and tried as we all are, and yet without sin. He understood our weaknesses and our challenges, yet He did it without sinning. That's how He was the perfect Lamb of God. He was spotless and sinless. And so all these things are coming together to be how the author shows us that Jesus is perfectly and uniquely qualified to be our high priest. Only He could fulfill this to be the perfect high priest. Only He could do it. It's why Joshua, who wasn't a priest at all, could not ultimately lead His people into rest. He was not the one appointed to do all these things. But Jesus is the one appointed. And so he meets all of those qualifications. And yet, there's a distinct focus last Sunday morning on one particular qualification that's mentioned twice. First of all, in verse 1 it says that he is appointed for men. Now that automatically tells you it's not something you do for yourself. right? It's passive. It's a passive verb. You are appointed. You didn't appoint yourself. You are appointed. And then again, it reminds us of this at the end where it says, because of this, he's required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sin. That's what Aaron has to do, right? He has to offer sacrifices for himself first and then for the people because he's a sinner. Christ doesn't have to. That's why he's superior. But look at verse 4. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So twice that one is emphasized, right? Almost bookending it. Verse 1 and verse 4. We must recognize no one appoints themselves as high priest. They are appointed by God. Aaron was appointed by God. Now we might ask, well, it's telling us then I assume that Jesus didn't appoint himself. But where do we find that in the scriptures? And so this author says, I'm glad you came to that point because it's what I want to tell you. Uh, it tells us in Scripture that He did not appoint Himself. And we want to look at that. So as we read this text again, I want us to read the larger section. I'm going to read 1 through 10. Actually, 1 through 11, excuse me. And then we're going to focus on verses 5 and 6 today. 
For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now that's the extended passage we'll be looking at through Easter, and there is a whole lot there to unpack and think about and Uh, to consider in terms of Christ's mission and what he did. And there's some things in there that might even challenge us a little bit as we think about uh, these comments about uh, learning obedience. Right? What does that mean to say of the second person of the Trinity? What does that mean? And so there's going to be some challenging texts as we move forward, but they're all important if we understand Christ's mission on which he came and what God was preparing him for and the role he now has. And we're going to get a little introduction to that today. We've had it before, chapter 1 certainly. But we're going to be refreshed in this as we get ready to look at some of these things from his ministry and life. So we come on the tail end of what we read and we want to look at two points. First of all, two ministries contrasted. And second of all, two psalms considered. So as we begin this morning to look at these things... I'm going to ask you to think back to the things we just looked at, the things we just considered, the things that were just said about the qualifications for a high priest. And over the next few weeks, we'll see how it leads to understanding how Christ mediates on behalf of His people and, uh, and so on and so forth. But we also need to think of the logic that's given to us by the Holy Spirit as we look at this. We saw these qualifications laid out for the high priesthood, and we recognize that Jesus fulfills them all. All of them he fulfills. We just walked through them and said, does he fulfill this one? Yes. And this one? Yes. And this one? Yes. And so he meets those. That's part of the author's argument here. Jesus is qualified to be a high priest. If you think that he just sat in heaven, he would not be qualified. And that is something that sometimes we struggle with. But we recognize that the argument of Hebrews and the scriptures is he had to become a man. To be able to fulfill this role because, first of all, he he couldn't die as God, right? He had to die as a man. If he was going to be the perfect sacrifice for sin, then he had to die as a man. But also, he could not be a mediator or high priest if he were not fully God and fully man. And so all this imagery, all this argument is given to us throughout the Scriptures, but it's summed up really here in Hebrews. And we need to think about that. And so again... We see all these points that we just looked at, selected from among men, yes. Representing men and things pertaining to God, yes. Uh, Understanding, gentle toward those he represents, yes. 
all these things. So all these things that are laid out for the priesthood of Aaron, we could also apply to Jesus. At least some of them. There's a few things that we'll see don't line up. But they're because of the greatness of Christ, not because of any weakness in him. So again, we see all these things. Aaron and his successors represented the people of God to God. Yes, Jesus represents the people of God to his Father. And so again, all these things are parallel. Just as Aaron offered up the sacrifice, and those who were the successors of Aaron offered up sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, so Christ offered up the sacrifice. But the difference is his was greater. It was once and for all. He doesn't have to continue going on and on and on and on. We made the point, one of the things that we point out about the era of Catholicism is that they offer the sacrifice over and over and over. As often as there is Mass, they say Christ is crucified anew. And my friends, we say no. The Scriptures say He was sacrificed once and for all for sinners. And so, my friends, it's an important thing to think about these because doctrinal points hang upon them. And we need to recognize that. So there are many areas of comparison here between Jesus and Aaron. In fact, many things that we would say are are similar between uh, Jesus and Aaron. But you may remember we just got through a section in which Moses and Jesus were compared. And in that section, there were some similarities, right? Moses was a faithful servant of God. So was Jesus. But Jesus is counted worthy of greater honor and glory because he's a greater servant. He's not just a servant, if you will. In fact, the real argument he makes is not just about his service, but that Moses ultimately is a servant in all of God's house, but Christ rules and reigns over the house of God, right? Over the people of God. He doesn't just serve amongst the people of God. He reigns above the people of God. And so again, we see there a comparison to Moses, but also a contrasting, which shows the glory of Christ. Well, that's what we see here as well. There's a lot of comparisons between Jesus and Aaron. There are a lot of similarities between Jesus and Aaron. But there's also some contrasting here, and we need to recognize that. So we see uh, that they are both high priests, but not in the same way. I'm going to save the most obvious difference uh, for just a moment from now, but one thing is Aaron is the shadow, right? Aaron points forward. His priesthood points to a greater priesthood, but there is none greater than that of Christ. It is the fulfillment of all those pictures. His priesthood is the perfect priesthood. It is the great priesthood. Nothing else is to come after it. And second of all, as we saw a moment ago, it says that Aaron had to offer up sacrifices for his own sins first before he could offer them up on behalf of the people. Christ doesn't have to do that. In fact, that's going to be a a point argued in just a couple of chapters, that Christ had to waste no time in offering sacrifices for himself because he is sinless. But Aaron had to because Aaron was a fallen man, one appointed to a great task by God, but still a man. Both were appointed to the office that they held, but there's a great distinction even in their appointments. Aaron appointed by God as the high priest over the old covenant administration. Christ is not a priest according to the old covenant, but according to the new covenant. And there's even a difference there that will be exposited later by this author, that Aaron's priesthood and all his successors are but for a time. Now we could argue 
individually, as an individual priest, it was but for a time, because no matter how great this author will argue any one man's priesthood was, it would be interrupted by death. It would not go on forever. But even the old covenant priesthood itself as a whole would be interrupted eventually. It was not to last forever, but it was to point to something greater than itself. The end of the law, Paul says, is what? Christ Jesus. Right? The law was pointing to Christ. So the Sinai covenant and all of its administrations, including the old covenant priesthood, ultimately were there to take us to Christ and His greater priesthood. And Christ's priesthood is not interrupted by anything. It is an eternal priesthood. How do we know that? Well, just look at verse 6. You are a priest forever. No ending date put on that. Nothing will succeed it. Nothing will overtake it. Nothing will interrupt it. The principle of last things being fullness is something we just saw in in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress when we were in the House of Interpreter. You remember there's a, a scene there of, uh, of uh, passion and patience. And patience is willing to wait for the last things, right? Not the immediate things. And there's something said there. Now, I know it's a little bit different context, but it applies just as well. For first must give way to last. Just put it in terms of this. Aaron must give way to Christ. Because last must have his time to come. But last gives place to nothing. For there is not another to succeed. Christ gives way to no one because He is the eternal priest. No one comes after Him. No one replaces Him. There is no better version because He is perfect. He is the perfect high priest. And therefore, He will reign as our priest and king forevermore. So the Levitical Levitical priesthood must give way to that of Christ. And that brings us to our chief question for this morning. Then how was He appointed? Again, this is the one element that we said we need to look at a little bit more, that the author wants us to look at a little bit more. The only one that was really mentioned twice in those first four verses, that no man appoints himself and that the high priest must be appointed. So where do we learn in Scripture that he was appointed to this end? Where do we learn that like Aaron, we can turn back and see where Aaron was appointed, the high priest of the people. Where was Christ So, again, it would have us to look to two psalms. We mentioned that we wanted to consider two psalms. Well, that's because this author gives us two psalms. In verses 5 and 6, he quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Now, if you've been here with us through this entire journey through Hebrews, these are psalms we've looked at before, aren't they? Chapter chapter 1, yes, we saw both these psalms. Because, again, he points to... Uh, the appointment and inheritance of Christ, but also later to the enthronement, the, the reigning nature of Christ as king. He says the angels don't reign. right? They are ministering servants for the people of God. But Jesus is enthroned forever. For to which angel did He ever say, sit at my right hand? He said it to no angel. He said it to His Son. He said it to Jesus. And so again, as we look at that, we see this distinction, this appointment. And we want to start where this author starts, and that's Psalm 2. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to Psalm 2. And just consider for a moment this great psalm. So it's called the Messiah's Triumph and Kingdom. I just want to read it, and then we're just going to talk about it for a second. Why do the nations rage 
and the people plot a vain thing. The king of the earth set themselves. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, "Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us." He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now this is a great and glorious psalm. We looked at it a couple of times in chapter 1. We mentioned that when it speaks of him being the inheritor of all things, what is it referring to? Well, right here we see one picture of it, right? We see that he says that he will give him the nations as an inheritance. But this speaks, does it not, to the fact that He says something here, very important. Today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is verse 7. And there are some things that we must think about. I brought these up in chapter 1, but we must think about them again because the author of Hebrews would have us think about them. What is this today? The today of begottenness, if you will. Well, There's a lot of debate about that. And we went in chapter 1 and said that it's important to realize the author of Hebrews is speaking about the enthronement of Christ. He's speaking about His exaltation. This is where He became the messianic king. Do not consider, don't confuse this, I want to say, with Him being the only begotten Son of God. Right? This is something that is eternal. Right? Being the second person of the Trinity. This is a doctrine the church has held to for 2,000 years. That Christ is eternally the begotten Son, the only begotten Son of the Father. But at the same time, this is not using it in that sense because it's speaking of a today in which He was begotten, in which the nations were offered as an inheritance, in which He had a rod of iron, in which He would rule as King. As King. Because as God, He's always done that. He's always done that. So again, what is this reference to? Well, if you were to go back to chapter 1, and those sermons are online if you want to look at them more in depth. But just a really quick recap here. This is referencing something that happened. Something that happened in time when Christ was exalted and enthroned in heaven at God's right hand. Now again, these are confusing things. In fact, there's a great book on this whole thing called The Paradox of Sonship. Because there seems to be a paradox here. The one who eternally reigns as the second person of the Trinity is now said to be enthroned. Well, it would be redundant if it was in the same way. But the point is, this is the God-man who is enthroned, the Messiah, the Son, not only of God, but the Son of David, the Messianic King, enthroned in heaven, in glory, forever and ever. In fact, as the um, Old Testament peoples were trying to figure out how to understand these Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, and you can see this very much in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where you had the Essene community trying to work through these things, They thought Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 must speak of two different messianic figures, one a king and one a priest. 
And this author is telling you, no, in verses 5 and 6, this is the same one. The messianic king priest. In fact, I believe we had a a sermon titled something like that in chapter 1. The messianic king priest. Something of that nature. But that's what it's speaking to here. He's speaking of the one who God declared. Now you say, this is a little bit confusing. It is a little bit confusing. Because the one who is eternally king becomes the king. The one who is eternally the son becomes the son. But it is clearly what Scripture teaches. All we would have to do is turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, to that great intro to this letter. And what do you see there? You see it after it talks about his ontological glories, right? Being the express image of the Father. All these things. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins. So that's in time, isn't it? That didn't happen eternally. That happened in time. He came as a man and went to Calvary's cross and gave his life as a sacrifice, as an atonement for sin. When he had by himself purged our sin, then it says, then he sat down at the right hand. Sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now listen to this wording. And I would ask you, you can go back and if you want more on this, go back to chapter 1 sermons. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And we went through those difficulties in chapter 1. How does the one who is eternally greater than the angels become greater than the angels? That would seem to be kind of a a paradox or oxymoronical statement. He is already greater than the angels. How did he become greater than the angels? Again, if you strip out his messianic kingship, you miss the entire argument. And it makes no sense. But the one who became lower than the angels, according to Psalm 8, was exalted to honor and glory, and in that way became greater than the angels. The one who was put lower than the angels, became once more greater than the angels. And at that moment, it says, that's his enthronement and his exaltation. At that moment, it says, he also was given a name greater than that of the angels. Well, what is that name? Well, the only name the author exposits over the next several uh, verses, in fact, the rest of that chapter, is Son. For unto which angel did he ever say, You are my Son, today I've begotten you. So again, this is that paradoxical language that we have, that the one who is eternally the eternal begotten Son, the one who is uh, the King of all things, became the inheritor, became greater than the angels, became enthroned, became exalted. Right? This is challenging, but we have to wrestle with it and put all together what the author is saying here. Jesus, the God-man, is exalted now to the place of ruling and reigning and interceding and possessing and being the inheritor of all things. It's now that we can understand the fullness of that. Now, that's what we've argued as the people of God for 2,000 years. The Nicene Creed, one of the earliest creeds of Christianity, the one that all Christians largely, I mean the Apostles' Creed, I guess, is the one that all agree to, but the Nicene right after it. It says this, that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. That means before anything was created, He was begotten of the Father. He was uh, the only begotten Son, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That is an important distinction. He is not created, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Now, Psalm 2 shows us then that the one who is eternally begotten, eternally the Son, 
exalted to the right hand of the Father. It's in this role. You know, one of the things we need to recognize, the Bible never strips away the humanity of Christ. It never says once he was exalted, the humanity is stripped away. It's not the argument, right? Even in Revelation, he stands there with the scars in his hand. They can look upon them. And so again, we need to recognize that he is eternally in this role as our priest king. So he was humiliated, but he has been exalted. And he serves as our king priest. So all that we've seen in the text, it's been argued in the text, but it's important to come back to it because it's going to be important for what we're seeing moving forward. All right, so then we want to look at one other psalm very quickly because he quotes another one as well that's connected to this one, and that is Psalm 110. And it's another short psalm. And you probably know it well, but let's read it again. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, obviously, we've talked a moment ago about how Psalm 2 points to this reigning, begotten king. Today I've begotten you, and you will rule and reign. Well, you can see how closely these are tied together because Psalm 110 begins with the Lord saying to my Lord, and of course, This is from David's perspective, right? David is saying, the Lord, God, said to my Lord, who is his descendant. And that's one of the things Jesus said. How does David, he asked the the scribes and Pharisees, how does David refer to his descendant as Lord? How would that make sense since in Jewish thinking, right, your descendants are not as great as you are? How would he say my descendant is Lord? And Jesus was trying to get them to think about that just a little bit, that the only way it makes sense is somehow his descendant is greater than he. And he certainly is. He is Lord. And so the Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is the moment of enthronement till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, so we see here a tie between Psalm 2 and 110, but there's something else given to us here. Where is the moment in which he is, in, he is appointed a priest? Well, it's right here. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. God has appointed this Messiah as a priest, and not just temporally, but forever, eternally, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to get into Melchizedek today. I've preached sermons on Melchizedek in the past. Uh, We've usually had one almost every Christmas. But the author is really going to get to Melchizedek moving forward, and let's save it for there. But just say something very small about him, because there's not a lot written about him in the Scriptures. In fact, if it weren't for Hebrews, we would have really very little at all about Melchizedek. He shows up here in Psalm 110. He shows up in a couple of verses in Genesis. This mysterious figure who is priest and king, king of peace, king of Salem, king of righteousness, right? Rules in this city, Salem, which later is called Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. Uh, brings out bread and wine, right? 
Abraham tithes to him. He's a priest of the Most High God. I mean, all these incredible pictures that are found in just a couple of verses in Genesis. This author says, let's unpack all of that and think about this incredible figure and how this mysterious priest king is the one, if you will, in whose order Christ comes as an eternal priest. Now, we're going to look at that more as we move forward. I don't want to get into that today. But it's important to recognize that the reason that there are some differences are Christ is because Christ is of a different order than Aaron. He's not a Levitical priest. Right? He wasn't appointed under the administration of the Old Covenant. He's appointed under a New Covenant. And His work is eternal. His work as uh, a priest is eternal. It is everlasting. And so it's important for us to realize these things. Now, is this an important point? Is all of this important? Yes. We know this for many reasons. A, it's bedrock in the argument of Hebrews. Two, the Holy Spirit in His perfect wisdom decided to teach us these things. So that means it is incredibly important for us to know it. And it's so many points of doctrine and understanding in the Scriptures really hang on understanding these points. That Christ is our glorious high priest. That when we need to think about our need of intercession, it's not done haphazardly. It's not even done as in the Old Covenant where you'd say, you know, our high priest is okay. But the one in my grandfather's generation, boy, he was fantastic. If only we lived under his administration or his uh, leading as high priest. Nothing like that. The high priest that intercedes on my behalf is the same one who interceded on behalf of my grandfather and his grandfather and all those in Christ since Christ ascended to that place as our perfect high priest and king. My friends, there's a confidence in that. We can come boldly, right, before the throne of grace because we know who our intercessor is, who our high priest is. We can go to him and know that he will care and have compassion upon us because we are his people. And because he is the perfect high priest, fully God and fully man, has shared in our weakness as a human being, yet he is without sin. He's able to help us in our time of need. I'll also point out this is something that Baptists have pointed to for all of our history as well. Um, In the Baptist Confession, chapter 8, point 1, it says this, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world. My friends, what this reminds us of, these are not secondary points of importance. These are things we've held to as Baptists for something like 400 years and for Christians something like 2,000 years. And really, even all those Old Testament promises were looking forward to these things. Because again, there were people in the Old Testament that said, you know, we've got some crummy high priests. But in the Old Covenant, that's how it was. There could be high priests that were better, some worse. But all that prefigured the great high priest who intercedes on our behalf, our priest king, Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, we can take comfort and confidence in knowing who it is at our Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf in our times of trouble. And as human beings, we know we have many times of trouble, and we need our faithful high priest.